Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 2 this morning as we finish up our study of the Twelve, or uh, the Minor Prophets, as known by some. We're finishing Malachi because, in a rather slow fashion because it represents the the practical conclusion of the entire 12, of the entire minor prophets. I told you at the beginning of the series that uh, the, what we know as the minor prophets have been arranged together to be understood actually as one large book in the New Testament, you'll see, I mean in the Old Testament. You'll see themes from the beginning that run all the way through to the end. And so it's interesting that Malachi has such a, a practical conclusion, just like a letter from Paul would have a lot of doctrine to start off with and then end with some duty. So also we find the duties of those who are followers of Yahweh in the latter parts of the book of the Twelve. So we will focus in on one particular part of Malachi today. And then next week uh, we'll have a guest speaker, a young, gifted preacher. Remember last week I was joking around about being old? And I got a lot of comments from everyone older than me in the congregation about how bad that made them feel. (laughs) But the guy that's coming to preach next week is actually younger than I am, uh, but a gifted expositor. And we're bringing him in because, A, it's always good to hear other people. But, B, I'm going to use next week to prepare our study of the Gospel of John. I want to get an overview of the entire book before we actually dive into that. And then the next week, we're going to conclude Malachi, but here's the cool thing about that. The end of Malachi is actually the introduction to the book of John. I didn't plan it that way, but then I I started studying chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect in God's plan. So that's kind of the calendar of events of things coming up. Right now, let's look into God's Word in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to the end of the chapter. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob Any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife But divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. If luck is when opportunity meets preparedness, we should feel pretty lucky today. I know some of you would be even disturbed by me using the word luck. You can call it providence. I know God's in control. But the point is opportunity and preparedness. You know that it is our goal as we are studying through the Scriptures for us to be both faithful to the Word and to be feeding the sheep that are gathered here. Uh, The faithfulness to the Word aspect is, is just something that we're committed to. We work through passages of Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to make sure that we're we're saying what God says, not what we want the text to say. But at the same time, it is our heart to feed the sheep. We want to make sure that what God says is connecting to 
uh, what you're experiencing and, and dealing with. And uh, sometimes the, the, the distance between uh, the faithful word and the feeding of the sheep seems a little farther. Sometimes it seems really close. Today is one of those days. When we think about the feeding of the sheep and the opportunity aspect, I think that we as a flock could use some encouragement and equipping in the arena of marriage. I say this for a few reasons, and don't worry, I'm not gunning for anybody today, not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, but this is central to the mission of our church. We, we say that the mission of, of this church is to raise up generations of God-glorifying Christ followers, and from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, uh, the unit that God has chosen to get that work done is primarily a family unit. We see the family upheld throughout the Bible. We even read of it again in the Old Te- New Testament this morning from Ephesians 5 and 6. This is a big deal uh, to God. But it's also especially relevant for us today because uh, the family in particular is under attack in our culture. This was something that was ironically prophesied uh, by Aldous Huxley uh, in his novel, A Brave New World. Now, he actually creates this character named Mustafa Mond, and he's like the controller of this dystopian society. And, and Mond, in one of his lectures, blames sacred institutions of family, love, motherhood, and marriage for causing social instability in the old society. For, for them, in that novel, that, that was the problem that we needed to overcome. And When people read that, you know, decades ago, they probably thought, oh, what a joke, that's kind of funny. And then you realize that it actually is a controlling principle in the society in which we live today. I don't mind calling out uh, the name of the organization, but through all of the racial unrest of the previous couple years, Black Lives Matter was at the lead. And one of the things that it said in its initial charter, now they've since struck this because of the bad PR, but one of the things that they wanted to accomplish is the following, I'm quoting, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So the nuclear family, as you know it, this is explicitly prescribed, is a problem, it is a potential threat. Uh, On the positive end, they say, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexuals. Again, this is a platform of a movement. By the way, a a, a distant, distant decree from that which Martin Luther King Jr. himself would say in the 60s, just for clarification's sake, King noted, the group consisting of father, mother, and child is the main educational agency of mankind. King here is speaking of the nuclear family. My point is not to die diverge into some type of racial conversation this morning. My point is for you to understand that the nuclear family, as prescribed by the scriptures, is actually under attack. It's not a theory. It's not some intellectual enterprise. This is an active agent of change in the world in which we live, and therefore the topic should be addressed because the scriptures speak to it, because it's under attack. And this one I'm the most embarrassed about. I really am. We need to talk about it today because it's been accidentally avoided in the teaching of the church, this church. Sometimes when I confess things to you as a church family, um, it can come come across as if like I'm I'm halfway joking or maybe I'm looking for some sympathy. I, I look for no sympathy here. Uh, The elders have primarily entrusted me with the doctrinal diet of the church. Of course, they approve of the series that I do and that kind of thing. Um, But do you know how many times I've preached on marriage since I've been here in the last five and a half years? 
once. And it was in an exposition of the Gospel of Mark back in 2016-17, and I didn't even hit marriage actively, I hit divorce. That's shameful. Shouldn't have happened. For all of my commitment to working my way through the text, this is such a central, central institution uh, to what God is wanting to get done in this, in this world that uh, it should have never happened. So we're long overdue here, friends. Even in our, doc- even in our seminars, we haven't done a marriage seminar. We've done parenting seminars. We did one weekend uh, on a Paul Tripp thing on a Friday night and a Saturday morning on marriage but that's the only other thing I can recall. So that being said, uh, we as a church family, and I see a lot of guests here, glad you're here, but I'm, I'm speaking to our church family, we're long overdue. So opportunity has met preparedness. The opportunity is we need to be thinking about the importance of marriage, but the preparedness is we're prepared for this because we're just working our way through a text. I have no agenda this morning beyond God's agenda. I didn't like get some, some rufflings of uh, marriages that were gone awry and thought, you know what, I need to break off my normal series and really target some of these things so that we can get stuff in line. This is just where we are. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And it's Malachi's concern in this text, as you can see. Uh, we noted last week that Malachi lives in what I am uh, kind of anachronistically calling a post-Christian world. Of course, he would not have called his world Christian, but there is a world in which people at one point held to the beliefs of the Bible, and then they had let it go. It was just getting frustrating for them. It was getting old. And what I noted in that is that that post-Christianity, that post-commitment um, to Scripture is actually more troublesome than paganism. Paganism is when nobody has ever had any exposure to Christianity, and you need to teach them the truth. But in many cases, Malachi's world and ours resemble one another insofar as so many people have heard the truths of Christianity and are just burnt out on them. They don't like them anymore. They don't find them relevant. And so in that very situation, Malachi is speaking and he's saying, regardless of how antiquated you may feel, the biblical ideals may be for this world and culture and society Here is what God still expects from you in light of the fact that he is coming back to rule and reign. And I said that there were three directions in the book of Malachi. Just placing this in its context. Uh, The first one is us, I mean God to us. The first thing he wanted us to know in the first few verses, and be assured by this, friends, is that God loves his people. You've got to know that first. The second thing that Malachi mentions is that there are obligations then from us to God. He deserves all of our allegiance. So that's what we looked at last week. Now we find ourselves in in the third direction, if you will, that Malachi gives for those in this post-Christian world, and it is simply us to one another. His concern here is the horizontal relationships that we have, not just the vertical ones. Now, it would be easy for you because of the way that I've set this up to think that he's only concerned about marriage. That is not true. His main concern in this section and the next are relationships with one another generally, but he's especially concerned about marriage in particular. You'll notice even as you're reading through the text that the word faithless is repeated over and over again. In fact, in these few verses, five different times, he's going to note their faithlessness to, to one another. But I want you to notice something in verse 10. Look at it in your own copy of God's Word. It's all rooted in the, the relationship, the loyalty, the faithfulness they should be showing to God. He says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? He's talking about them being common family uh, under the God of Israel. Has not one God made us all? Then why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Notice that. He says we're breaking the covenant to God by breaking the covenant with one another. I love, it's blown my mind in recent years to read through the scriptures and understand that it is absolutely impossible to say that you love God and you want to follow Jesus apart from loving his people, and wanting to do what's best for them. This is the general argument here. I see it in my home all the time with my children. They can say that they love us as parents, but they're just not showing it very well in those times in which there is conflict with one another. 
I'm not divulging any particular stories today. But you can imagine that it happens. It's impossible. We're all a family. And in a similar way, God is saying, it's impossible. You have been faithless to me insofar as you have been faithless to one another. But with that, he says, there's one area in particular in which I am especially concerned about this horizontal faithlessness, and that is the area of marriage. And so what God does here in these few verses is clarifies two demands for marriage. In light of the meaning that he has given marriage, he gives us two demands. The first is the pursuing of godly spouses. That's in verses 10 through 12. The second is the sticking to given spouses. Pursuing of godly spouses, 10 through 12, sticking to given spouses, verses 13 to 16. It's pretty simple. The divine meaning of marriage, the fact that God created this particular institution, demands our pursuing of godly spouses. Now, don't check out on me, friends. I realize I'm, I'm wading into controversial waters. Everyone in this room is either single and looking, single and not looking, married and happy, married and not happy, or divorced, or divorced and looking. I mean, like, there is nobody who will not be touched in some way by something here. And so let me just kind of affirm the tone of these demands, because demands is a strong word. I actually intend for them to be, to use the phrase that I heard earlier this week, supports and not spears. I'm not angry. I, I have no axe to grind, but I just want to support our understanding of God's divine ideal and not use it as a weapon against you. It is a help. So these demands are supports. They're, they're not spears. Regardless of where you fit on the marital spectrum, this is applicable to us all. So the first, the divine meaning of marriage demands our pursuing of godly spouses. Uh, you, you noted that problem in verse 10. It just seems that they were really more committed to their own personal interest and not to one another. Uh, one called what's going on here the disorder of self-indulgence. Do you not see this in our society? Uh, The author writes, in this community, the spirit of commitment-making and commitment-keeping has been replaced by a spirit of emotional and physical impulse. The moral fabric of faithfulness to covenants and promises and contracts is unraveled, and what's left are the individual strands of private gratification. You not see that in our world? Everyone's number one commitment is to themselves and their own happiness, never to anything outside of them. That's what I'm saying. You would think that Malachi was writing last week, not two millennia ago. And so notice like how God understands this and intends for us to understand this, this faithlessness to one another. Look at verse 11. He says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Just pause there for a second. Notice he hasn't actually described the problem. He's describing the problem behind the problem. It's what I would call the polluting situation. There's contamination all around, and it's evidenced by the fact that you guys don't give a rip for one another. And in fact, it isn't just some type of minor societal sin. This is something that has polluted the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, normally that would refer to the actual, like, time and space location of the temple. But here it seems that the author is actually using this to refer to the holy community, the people of God. You've released a contagion into God's pure people. He even uses the word abomination. You want to do something fun? Look up the word abomination in the back of your Bible and then just note what God describes as abominations. The worst and most heinous sins that you could possibly think of in the Old Testament and New are normally put under that category. And so whatever it is he's specifically about to call out is in the highest degree of moral repulsivity for God. He hates it. So what is it? He says, it's the fact 
that Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. That stands in clear contrast with those who were created under the one father. So the father has a group of people, but then the foreign gods have their own group of people. And the problem here is that the people of God were marrying into the people of the foreign gods. Does that make sense? If I were to translate this into our our modern vernacular, this would be uh, those who are in Christ pursuing marriages with those who are outside of Christ. I wouldn't know how to say it any other way. And this is a big deal to God. It's, in fact, it's pervasive. He says that it was going on all over the place. It wasn't just an isolated incident. He says, Judah has done this. And I want you to note in particular, like the, the penalty for this, verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, even he who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is steep. He's saying, cut them off. Like, they need to be excommunicated from the godly line. This is strong curse language. It's saying this person is not actually under the old covenant, under the favor of God, but actually his frown, his displeasure, that they should be excommunicated, if you will. And so what was going on here? It just seems that There were men in this particular culture and society who were no longer pleased with the options that had been provided them within the covenant community and said, I want to find someone who will either be more appealing or more strategic. Now, in our 21st century culture, we immediately think that the the dudes in this context are pursuing the daughters of the foreign gods because of their physical beauty. Well, you would expect that, and there may be some of that going on, but this is a culture of arranged marriages, friend, and just to be really clear, I don't think it's their sexual impulses that are driving them this direction as much as it is their social ones and financial ones. Remember, Judah at this particular time has been decimated. They're living in poverty, but other nations that more readily bowed the knee to the Babylonian and Persian invasions are now thriving economically. And so when these guys start getting behind, they find that they could probably arrange a marriage with someone in the land, a pagan who actually has a little more clout. And even though polygamy at this time was widely accepted, what seems to be happening is that some of the guys were divorcing their Jewish wives so that they could impress these pagan father-in-laws and get as much money as possible. The point isn't why they were doing what they were doing alone. The point is what they were doing. In the end of the day, what God forbids is their pursuit of these who are not in the covenant relationship with God. The principle here is clear, friends, and maybe you could write it down. God's meaning for marriage matters more than ours. I say this to those of you who are single. I say this to those of you who are married. God's meaning for marriage matters more than ours. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you should marry someone who is in Christ. This is what I would call, uh, friends, the, the Jack and Rose principle. I don't know anybody else who calls it that. It's just me. And when I say that, I, I am referring, admittedly, to an old movie. It is now an old movie because it was 1998. Um, And again, anytime I mention a movie, please don't assume that I endorse everything that's in a movie. So with that caveat in mind, I'm referring to uh, the multiple award-winning Titanic in which, well, surprise, the ship goes down. But (laughs) before (laughs) the real plot conflict is this relationship between uh, Rose, uh, the main character, uh, and Jack. There's this other guy uh, in the story. His name's Cal. Cal's the rich guy. He's got all the money, the connection, and the resources. And Rose's mother actually wants Rose to marry Cal. She's hoping to foster that relationship. Why? And for those of you who have seen Downton Abbey, you can understand the thinking of this particular time period. They wanted those two to get married because of the economic advantage that it would have provided to their family. 
They had just gone through the potato famine or whatever, and so they actually needed the resources. And so she's actually trying to encourage this relationship with this guy named Cal. But any good old American watching this thing knows better than to pull for what would be best for the family. We've got to pull for what's best for her individual impulses. So how does uh, Cameron set it up for you to, to, to cheer? You don't cheer for Cal. You, you, cheer, you, you cheer for Jack, the guy in the third class uh, cabin. The street rat that actually won a ticket uh, by gambling to get on the ship in the first place. Like you're thinking, yes, this is where your, your, your heart is there, Rose. Like follow this. Like do what's best for you. That's a modern day American marriage principle. Follow your stinking heart. But I don't think, though, that even what was being championed by some of the older generation of that particular period is even as far enough as it needs to be, because I'm not going to tell you today that we need to move from an individualistic perception of marriage to a collectivistic understanding of marriage, because here's what happened in that case. I'm not implying, by the way, that Rose's mother was right and that Rose was wrong. I think even Rose's mother wasn't thinking big enough. She's only thinking in terms of what's good for the financial advantage of the family. See, stories like these are powerful, friends, because they inform what some sociologists call the social imaginary. They make us think that certain things are real when they're not. You know what's totally excluded from the Titanic equation? God. That was never even an option to marry the guy that's in Christ versus the guy that's out of Christ. It's just, well, you either marry the rich guy and don't have love, or you, you follow your individualistic impulses and you're not rich. But God is never in the equation. Friends, it's not about individualism versus collectivism. It is about Yahwehism, following the Lord. So the marriage principle then that is actually advocated in Scripture isn't, hey, we all go to arranged marriages or we all do our individualistic thing. It is, what would actually contribute to the continued glory of God displayed through His people? It's not the way that we normally think of it. I want to be clear about three things Uh, In particular, I I want you to know what the text is not saying. It'd be easy to over-listen, I guess. Clarification number one. The text is not saying that you cannot marry someone of another ethnicity. So when he's talking about the daughter of foreign gods, he's not concerned about their bloodline. He's concerned about their beliefs. Marriage with people of other nations is attacked not because of ethnic, racial, or national bias, but because, and only to the extent that it represents the compromising of the true revealed faith by conjoining a pagan and a believer as one flesh. And this logic, friends, runs through the entire Bible. It's it's always warning us, not against bloodline, but belief. Uh, Second thing it's not saying, clarification number two, the text is not saying that it's impossible in every case for an unbelieving spouse to be converted. Not saying that. I'm reading what I wrote because I don't want to take a chance at saying the wrong thing, so pardon my reading for a moment. It is not impossible for an unbelieving spouse to be converted. We have seen it happen And 1 Peter 3 says that we should live so as to make it happen. So if you're in that condition right now, you live so as to present the gospel. And we need to acknowledge, sometimes it works out. Some of my best friends, it's worked out. But let's also agree that it's not God's normal means. Uh, I think the analogy that I would use here, if there have been a few times in my life, don't tell any police officers, where I've gone 100 miles per hour. I, don't, I can't be arrested, like, after the fact, can I? I think they have to. <laughs> I'm renting a car. It was a, it was a Mustang. How often do I drive a Mustang? 
I'm on these backwoods Florida roads. It, it is a long way to my mother-in-law's house. I want to see what this thing can do. Um, like, it's just no man's land. And so anyway, I'm just letting it go. Um, but I think that we would agree that even though I survived, and even though that saved me probably all of 30 seconds on my car ride, <laughs> that generally speaking, it's not a good idea. Friends, the exception to the rule doesn't prove the abolition of the rule. And just because you know of some people that's worked out doesn't mean that, okay, free pass, um, I'm just going to marry somebody that's not a Christian. That's what I'm trying to clarify. The third thing, the text is not saying that if you were married to an unbeliever, you should get out. Crystal clear, I want to be clear on this. 500 years later, some believers in Corinth drew that conclusion, and Paul wrote them to tell them precisely not to pull out. He said, remain as you are, and if the unbelieving spouse departs, let him depart, but you remain as you are. And so let's apply this to the various spheres of individuals that are present today. First of all, I I speak to those of you who are single and seeking marriage. And by the way, this doesn't just include the 20-something or the 30-something or the 40-something, whatever. Uh, This would include any of you, even like in your teens or even a kid. So like if you're here and you are under the age of 18, I am speaking to you as well for a moment. Hear me well as a pastor. Just go ahead and think and know that God does not have it in his will for you to marry somebody that does not love Jesus. And I know I'm giving you really specific advice, but you can ask your parents about it afterward to see if I'm right. But I say that just as much, though, to the person in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. This is really clear. And so for those of you who are actively in the pursuit of a spouse process, I want to be careful here, but let let me just ask you this. Here's probably the most gentle way I can ask this. Are you seeking God's goal for marriage or your own? What is your ultimate? What is your ultimate? The passion behind your pursuit should be, according to this text, displaying God's holy love as a part of his people. That's the number one thing in your mind. With whom can I partner so as to preserve and display God's holiness and love among his people to the world? And I, I get it. I get it. I used to hear people talk about this, and I used to think, oh, man, that just means that I have to marry the ugliest person in the room. <laughs> you can give me that look. I, I thought that way. Like, we just automatically assume that somehow if we pursue God's best, it means our worst. What kind of view of God do you have? (laughs) Two two good questions uh, that I ask. Again, just implications. I I don't want to be overprescriptive. The two questions I would ask for those of you who are single and looking. um, Are you fishing in the right pond and are you fishing in the right way? Where is it that you are looking to find a spouse? Um, it, was, it was really funny. We're, we're, the, the, there's this ministry, the starting night focused to single young adults, and this rumor got spread around by like a couple of 20-somethings that this was all going to be some big grand setup scheme, and every, you know, like the pastors had actually intended to partner people together and marry them off. Um, <laughs> actually, not true. <laughs> You know what the the motivation behind the single young adult ministry was? It used to be when I was growing up, between the ages of 16 and 18, you're making some of the most strategic decisions you'll ever make in your life. And for whatever reason, the culture in which we live, that has been pushed up to like 21 to 30-something. I lament that. I'm an idealist. I wish that everybody was, you know, an adult at 18. But you know what? I bet Jewish people wish that we were adults at 13. I mean, I know that I could be a cultural snob about this thing, but the truth is there are really strategic decisions that need to be made in that time, and we thought, hey, it'd be great instead of pursuing all these people individually to try to give them some word-based exhortation about some stuff that matters in this strategic stage of life. 
And it is not lost on us that, oh, great, if they're together, maybe that helps. But what, what was really interesting to me was the idea that the church would ever want to promote relationships within the church. I'm thinking, like, in what pond will you fish then? Because of my fundamentalist upbringing, you know what the normal place was to find a godly spouse. This shouldn't have been this way, but this is the way it was. It was Bible college. But Bible colleges are few and far between and hard to find. And I don't even want a hint that everybody has to go to Bible college to find a bride or a husband. But you know why Bible colleges were such a unique context for that? Because two things. One, you had a bunch of people who were supposed to be, not always, but supposed to be pursuing God's will over their own. And then the second thing that made Bible colleges strategic is that there was a high degree of Christian community. Friends, if I can just extend this out for a moment, I think those are the two things we're looking for. here's Here's your dating strategy. Number one, be more consumed with Christ than you are the other relationship. And the second thing is don't resist, but receive and embrace Christian community. The more Christian people are getting together, the more you should be apart. And I have no stated conviction on dating apps, but I assure you that an algorithm doesn't know you as well as a real human. If you're married already, this still applies to you. I would encourage you who are married here today, in light of what you're hearing, remember the principle that your marriage exists for the glory of God and the good of those around you, not your personal gratification. I say this to husbands uh, because they can make certain aspects of marriage, which I will not name at this moment, to be the object of success in marriage, and that is not it. It is the glory of God and the good of those all around. But I think that wives have a particular temptation in this as well. Instead of maybe seeking the sexual, they seek the social. They like the status of marriage. They like the look of it. They want it to be something that they can post on their their Instagram page. They, They want it to be something that they can tweet about. And they're more concerned about the perception than the reality. They want it to look good to others because it makes them look good. The the point is, friends, I don't care what your idol is. There's a whole host of them. But the ultimate for marriage, according to God, is his glory and the good of his people, which includes the person that you've covenanted with in marriage. To use language that I've used elsewhere, are you both in your marriage fighting for the other person's highest and eternal good? And then lastly, well, no, actually, yeah, lastly, I need to move on. If you're divorced here today, you're, 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 maybe you're single, you're not looking, maybe you're a widow or a widower, you're like, what does this have to do with me? Can I show you something, friends? This will blow your mind. It would be easy to think that this is only about the people in those two categories. But note this. Notice how Malachi, the prophet of the Lord, speaks in, verses, uh, in verse 10. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Notice that the prophet as he's denouncing the nation, includes himself. Malachi wasn't divorced. Malachi wasn't pursuing pagan wives. But he saw himself as part of the team. He realized that for the church, let me just use that term loosely, I know I wouldn't normally apply it to an Old Testament context, but the church in this case, to allow people to pursue pagan wives is a loss for everybody, and he plays a role in it. Did you know that if you're single, or if you're divorced, or if you're widowed, or a widower, you feed into this through the conversations that you have with others about marriage? You know, like this is a, church is a team sport. (laughs) We're working in this thing together. And some of you, through your words and through your actions, could be giving some really bad counsel to those who are pursuing marriage. Be careful with what you say. This is our thing. It's for God's glory. 
So the demand is clear. There should be the pursuing of godly spouses. But there's another demand that's in verses 13 to 16. The divine meaning of marriage also demands our sticking to given spouses. So there's the pursuing of godly spouses and the sticking to given spouses. Now notice I said given and not godlike. If you write down sticking to godly spouses, you're going to be like, you know, out of this thing, the first time they sin against you. I said sticking to given spouses. Based on the old adage, once you say, I do, you did. (laughs) You're in. They've been given to you. So in light of that, there was another problem. Uh, It was this kind of aversion-based divorce, it seems, Now, he doesn't hit the problem directly. Look at verse 13. He says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now, he's noting that the people are going through the religious motions and they're trying to turn up the emotional intensity when they're giving their offerings, but they're still frustrated because it seems like nothing's happening. The text doesn't say exactly how they know that God's not listening, but frankly, friends, I think we all know. Sometimes we feel like, yes, I'm in tune with the Lord. Yes, he, yes, he's answering prayer. And sometimes you just feel like he might as well be on the backside of the moon. Something has signaled to them that they are not close to the Lord. And so they ask the question, what's going on? Why, why are we spiritually distant? Why will he not bless us? Why will he not accept our offerings? Look at verse 14. He says, but you say, why does he not? Why does he not do this? And the prophet answers, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So here he points it out clearly. He says, you've been faithless to the wife of your youth to whom you have made a companionship covenant before God. In other words, you're divorcing your God-given wife. And God hates it, and you will know it, and you will feel it, and you will experience it. Now, what's interesting here is that there is this this understanding that the marriage partner is, and I've never thought of it this way, but you could probably write down these words and they'd be helpful for you. A marriage partner is a divine covenant companion. A marriage partner is a divine covenant companion. I want to unpack each of those particular words. Let me start off with companion. The Hebrew word here, the same companion that's used in the the text uh, means that like they would actually come together in a formal and exclusive partnership there are lots of treaties in the old testament sometimes it's from superior to inferior this is what's called a parity covenant everybody's on the same level here in essence even though functionally the roles would be different and they would have different responsibilities they were at the end of the day to be companions lifelong to one another they were partners in the work that God had called them to. All right, so they were companions. Now, here's the second one, covenant. What do I mean by covenant? Well, marriage in the Old Testament was something of a legal contract under God. It was a promise. It is not just a life status. It is not a tax advantage Like you are legally saying before the law of God himself that we're going to operate as one till death do we part. It's fundamentally a promise. I don't think that um, we really understand even in our own individualistic age about how much we undermine the seriousness with which God takes our oaths, our covenants, our vows. Not just marriage vows, I'm talking anything. We just talk a lot. We say a lot of things. We don't follow through very well. But have you ever thought about the fact, like what it means for you to promise something to God, to promise him that you'll do something? Like the the marriages that that take place here, more than they are a great time to get together with friends and, and more than they are, you know, a beautiful picture or representation of what Christ has done for us. They're, they're actually more fundamentally a public promise, a covenant, a legal relationship that's actually being fused together in a particular moment. And that's why, friends, personal thing, just in case you ever want me to do your marriage, you can ask anybody here, 
There are two things I will not do. I will not do communion for you. I will explain that another time, another day. But the second thing I will not do is let you write your own marriage vows. Now, I know I sound like a persnickety old man and sticking to like really old language and marriage vows. But the reason why is because I do not want to give anyone the chance to downplay the essence of what a marriage is. Especially when people are coming up with stuff like this. I promise to be your co-pilot, your navigator, and to bring snacks on our road trip through life. (laughs) Not kidding, that's real. I promise not to watch the next episode on Netflix without you. I promise not to force you to watch a Gilmore Girls marathon. You know, these types of things dismiss the seriousness of what's taking place in this particular moment. In fact, I actually did a little bit of historical research this week and tried to think, well, how far have we actually come? You know, basically what we understand marriage to be today uh, was informed by uh, the Anglicans in their Book of Common Prayer. They thought carefully about what should take place in a marriage ceremony And think about the seriousness of these words. I might even start including this in the future. The idea is that the husband and wife, back in the old days, when they would come down, like they would ask, hey, does anybody object to this thing? Because we're about to enter into a solemn covenant. They're about to make a lifelong commitment. And we don't do that today because we don't want the awkward, you know, like jilted boyfriend from the past to like raise his hand and like ruin the ceremony. But if you actually think of the ceremony as being like, oh, this is a really serious event. Anybody can, can stop this thing now because we're going to be locked in after this. You know, that was a normal thing. But listen to this language. Like before you would even, and since Fred, I've dealt so much with you of late, before <laughs> we would even give the, the, the bride away, you know, for the marriage, like this is what's normally asked or back in the day. Um, will you, you, you ask the man this, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of mas- matrimony? Or will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her? And then it says, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others. Keep her only unto her so long as you both shall live. Think about what's being promised. Love, comfort, honor, keep. You're promising to do that with this woman for the rest of your life. And listen to what she will be promising. Will you, and and modern vows, again, scrub this. Will you obey him, serve him, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health, forsaking all those? It's, It's a covenant. It's a promise. It's not a feeling. It's not a tax advantage. And then here's the craziest part to me, like the heaviest. It isn't just a covenant companion, it is a divine covenant companion. There's the third word, divine. What's going down here, I think, is, um, is sobering because God says, uh, look again at your text, that he was present when they made the vow. Look at verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, you hear that word witness, and what do you think? You think of a witness, like, in court. You know, this is a guy that can, like, speak to, you know, an advantage or disadvantage for your particular case. But I need you to understand something. Take whatever you know the word witness to be and strike it out of your memory and replace it with this. A witness in Old Testament theological context like this was one who would make sure that both parties follow through with their aspect of the covenant. If you look in pagan and in particularly biblical covenants in the Old Testament, the witness was never human. It was always the gods, plural, or God himself. And you know what they're saying? The divine entity will enforce this. He will make sure that we follow through with our part of what we said. He is not just the one watching. Listen to this. He is the one enforcing. You think that you broke the promise to her or to him. The text is reminding you that they have broken the promise to God. It's heavy. God says, this this is mine. And he tries to unpack the implications of this divorce in verses 15 to 16. 
And admittedly, friends, I, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but even if I was, I wouldn't be able to make much sense to you of what verse 15 actually means. If uh, you have different translations, every one of them is going to read something different here. So I, I can't actually tell you exactly what it means, but here's some things that it can mean in light of what we know from the rest of Scripture. God is, is so angry about this divorce situation because it rends oneness. He made them one together, and they're tearing it apart. The second is that it retards godliness. It slows it down. You know what the purpose was? Godly offspring. God wanted more worshipers, more image bearers. And, and when you enter into this breaking of that contract, you are retarding that. You are slowing that down. Another implication that could be here is it conveys hatred. Look at verse 16. And again, controversial stuff. The ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Uh, for those of you who grew up reading the King James, what the King James say? God hates divorce. Now, the reason why this is problematic textually is because in the Hebrew is a third-person singular verb. He hates, not, I mean, you hate, not God hates. It's second person, excuse me, not third person. But the point is, when somebody does this, look at verse 16, let's just take it as the ESV states it, the man who does not love, the real word is hate, the man who hates his wife is the one who divorces her. God sees it as an expression of hate. And then the last thing that it says, it, this is the smearing of violence. He says, basically what they do is they're covering their garment, they're covering their clothes with violence. And for any of you who have ever been divorced, and I'm the product of a divorced home, so I think I have a firsthand like, observation on this thing, it just stains everything. It's violent. It's nasty. I think a good modern way to say it is, there will be blood on your hands. Somebody's going to get hurt, and everybody's going to see it. God hates it. It's an expression of hatred toward another. Uh, the practical principle. <laughs> it sounds so trite. It's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, divorce is the nuclear option. God does provide for divorce. It's in there. Our church actually doesn't teach that divorce is sinful under all circumstances, but this is what we do teach. It should never be pursued. It may be allowed, but it should never be pursued. I've used this analogy uh, before. I think it's helpful here. Every time I sit on a plane, you know what they tell me? Where the escape hatch is. Do you know how often when I'm sitting on a plane, I'm thinking, man, I just need to go open that door. Never. They've got to tell you, but they're not expecting you to actually use it. I think some people think, like, like the divorce option is kind of like whether you want peanuts on the flight or not. Well, if it doesn't go, well, maybe get some peanuts. Like, it's just such a low commitment kind of thing that once you open that door, it's going to be bad. But you may be able to get out. There are two circumstances in the scriptures, don't have time to cover every nuance, but two circumstances in the scriptures, generally speaking, in which God actually permits divorce. One is adultery, the other is abandonment. If you want to know more of what our church teaches on this, email us. We'll send you just our kind of doctrinal interpretation of that. But the point that he is getting to here, because if I nuance this thing too much, it's going to make it sound like, oh yeah, divorce is okay. No, God hates it. He doesn't want you to be a part of it. It is not an option to be pursued. It is only something that is allowed. But the implications of this are, look, friends, I don't know what's going on in your home right now. And even the pastor and his wife have ups and downs. <laughs> but divorce is not an option. And friends, you better fight for it. Just as the singles in here would have a tendency to withdraw from Christian community 
And by individualizing their marriage pursuits, so also I think that marriages get individualized in times of trouble because we're so ashamed of what other people are going to think. But you are denying yourself one of God's means of grace. Let other people who love you and care for you get involved. Divorce is not an option. What are the implications of this for those who are already divorced? Well, friends, again, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking practically. I want you to know I've, I've done a lot of work on this. Try to help us. Um, my dad's divorced. Obviously, my mom's divorced. My mom's been divorced three or four times. Like, like I, I get that this is common. I even talked to a group of ladies in our church this week who were divorced and said, hey, how can I do this with care? the congregation. Yes, God hates it. It is sin, but so is murder, and Paul loved Jesus. What I mean by that is, like, everyone knows that murder is a really big deal. It's really, really bad. We shouldn't ever promote it or encourage it, and yet Paul was instrumental in the deaths of, like, hundreds of Christians, most scholars would assume, and yet people don't think of Paul as the murderer guy. They think of him as the guy that was used by Jesus. God's grace is amazing, it pardons the past and it actually equips for the future. Uh, you don't have to re- wear this like some kind of albatross around your neck. I remember asking my dad one time about how to preach on this topic, and he said, Justin, you just need to be, be aware that anyone who is divorced feels naked, whether it was their fault or not. He says, I feel always naked. And I would say to my dad, if he's listening today, Christ clothes you. Christ died for that. So, so what's the way forward? You, can, you, you confess it, and you consecrate the rest of that marriage as you can to the Lord. If the person's not a believer, you pursue their spiritual well-being in Christ, and you love them well. You commit to the promotion and protection of other marriages in the church, not pessimism. Hear me. If you're divorced and not looking, be careful with what you say to others who are. Love them well. Hold up the ideal of marriage for them. Support them. Tell them your story. Teach them. Friends, divorce is an epidemic indeed. There's this, uh, there's this stat floating around out there, and it's not true. It's, it's so not true. I, I bet you already know it. Do you know what the divorce rate is in the United States or what you think it is? Somebody say it out loud. Half, yeah, 50%. It's like one of the biggest lies of all time. It is not 50%. It's more like 15%. <laughs> but either way, it is prevalent. You know what's crazy to me? So the current divorce rate, well, A, this thing's notoriously hard to measure. If you've ever taken like a stats class, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, um, any research on divorce will not pass a typical test because it's just too hard to measure. But the best we can guess is that the current divorce rate in the U.S. is 2.9 persons per 1,000 people. But here's what blew me away when I was looking this up. Do you know who reports the divorce statistics? The CDC. (laughs) Blew my mind. So the Center for Disease (laughs) Prevention and Control, like they see it as a disease. It's a problem. You know, here's an interesting thing. Overall, the divorce rate in the United States right now is actually falling. And everyone's like, yay! Nope. You know what also else is falling? The marriage rate. What is interesting, though, is that in this one nation under God, the divorce rate in the United States is higher than anywhere else in the world. That's a fact. Even if the rates are low, just ask yourself, you been there? You know anyone? You ever wrestled through it? Even from the side? What? What's the solution? How do we stem this, this tide? I think Malachi's provided the answer. And, and he's provided it in, in the whole book up to this point. Remember, I told you last week that he actually hits things in an appropriate order. 
Now, today, we jumped in, for those of you who are here for the first time, we jumped in on the us-to-one-another aspects of God's demands for a post-Christian world. But you know what preceded that? Us to God. If someone is truly enamored with God and His glory and His greatness and wants to obey Him first and foremost in their life, that is a protection against the us to one another. But there's something even farther behind that. Why would anybody ever give themselves wholly up to allegiance to God? Because of God to us. Because He loves us. And that evokes our worship and obedience and affection to Him, which bleeds into our relationships with one another. With, without even meaning to sound super spiritual and ultra-preacher predictable, the solution to the divorce epidemic is none other than the good news of Jesus Christ. The faithful God of heaven loves you in his son. He has poured out his love on you by, by actually sending his son to absorb the wrath that you deserve for every sin you'd ever commit to rise again so that you would have power to obey him in any way that you would ever choose. He's provided the solution and on the basis of his covenant love for us, his faithful love to us, we then can display his faithful covenant love to others. Apart from that, it is impossible. I know there may be some morally upstanding citizens here today who have been married for a long time without Jesus. I get it. But the test of brightness with God isn't have you been married and never divorced? The test is, have you received the special love of God in Jesus? That's for the moralist among us. There, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's love. You receive God's love and then you reflect it. I don't care what your marital status reflects. But then there's the other group that I'm concerned about, those who have blown it in this area, whether it's the single who has pursued the wrong thing or the person who has been divorced, even if it was their fault. God loves you too. And he died for that as well. And his resurrection power can enable the course correction that you and he desire. 